is perhaps a dream, but it's a necessity. In the last episode of Media Uncovered, we ended on this bold vision, or a dream, as Jean-Paul Filippo calls it. What we have to reach in the next years, it's to address and connect the majority of all the audience through our own platforms. We need to fix targets, I don't know, 70 or 75% reach through our own platforms. And then when we, 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 we realize this reach, cut the links with social networks. Jean-Paul is the director of RTBF, Belgium's French-language public broadcaster. And here he is saying, for public media to be sustainable, for it to survive, it needs to get off, cut the links with social media. It's an indication of how tricky, toxic even, the relationship has become between public media and tech platforms. We explored this in more detail on the last episode, and if you haven't already, I would suggest you go back and listen to it first. Because in this episode, we're looking ahead. What does the future look like in the relationship between public media and social media? How can public media wrestle back some of the control and power off the tech giants? Well, for starters, there's the approach Jean-Paul advocates. We start a policy with the goal to leave uh, social networks. Leaving platforms comes with a lot of risk, and you could be seen to be abandoning your audience. But there's already evidence from elsewhere that it could work. We've had a 33% growth in our audio app. Having this strategy has also increased our listeners quite immensely. Or what about this? Public media presenting a united front and meeting the challenges collectively. This is the first time in the history of public service media that we collaborate financially on a joint project of this nature. I'm Harry Locken from the Public Media Alliance. This is Media Uncovered. Let's begin with this first approach, leaving social media. Since the last month, we start a policy with the goal to kit, to leave uh, social networks at term. And so we want to increase the reach, especially on young audience, on our own platforms, in which we invest a lot, to be able to reach everyone without need uh, of a third platform to connect them. It's a bold and admirable vision that the values of social media are simply so disparate from public media that public media for its and its audience's own good simply has to step away. But you can't just abandon audiences. That runs counter to all the basic principles of public service media, such as universalism and accessibility. The solution to that problem is that instead, you get the audiences to come to your platforms. Platforms which are grounded in public service principles, rather than commercial or data harvesting incentives. You design an offering which entices audiences away from those commercial platforms, and instead to yours. And there are examples of some public service media actually doing this, spurning third-party platforms and saying to audiences, if you want our content, you're going to have to come to us. Uh, my name is Katinka Ronden. I'm head of uh, audio at Norwegian Broadcasting Company. Last year, NRK started to implement a new audio strategy. Our main strategy is what we say to bring the audience home to our own platforms. That is our main goal is... Uh, 
for all of our products to bring the audience to us. How do you how do you go about that? In audio, we have done that by uh, for a year and a half now. We we started a year and a half ago with like a pre premiere that everything was a week earlier on our app and uh, RK radio, and then uh, we went on with making a couple of very popular titles exclusive. And then we took the archive, everything more than three months, and then we kept taking more and more popular podcast titles. So now, and we're just heading that same way now for doing more and more titles exclusive uh, in NRK uh, radio. Did you feel like you were pioneering? Were you one of the first, if not the first public broadcaster to to maybe try that, that, that method, that strategy? Ila has actually did it before us, the Finnish broadcasting company, but they have a TV and audio app and they did everything at once. But we felt very bold. Third-party audio platforms aren't social networks, but they do share a number of features with social media. Platforms, for example, operate with public media as a kind of mutual exchange. Public media use platforms as a way of disseminating their content and accessing those audiences. In return, platforms get to host public media content, a source of impartial and accurate news. But public broadcasters are slowly coming to the realisation that it's not a fair mutual exchange. At first it was like, wow, you there are so many new listeners there who maybe haven't heard of uh, our content and we can meet them on the third parties. But it, it became increasingly difficult in NRK and you know especially as a public broadcaster if we have a new poetry show we have to show you know a lot of different content not only the most popular ones and the most of the third party platforms most important for them to show what's most popular we thought in the beginning that when we thought of this long term what happens if we one day want to say we have a new podcast show that we want uh, young people to discover and we're dependent on third-party platform, someone who you email with to hopefully make it easy to discover on their site. I think it's important for the editorial freedom and for the ability to do our job as a public broadcaster that we own the possibility and ability to show the content we think is most important right now and not leave that job to someone else. Katinka says that another issue they faced with third parties was some problematic editing, whether it was the erasure of Arabic letters on a flag on a podcast about IS, the removal of an episode about sex education, or the obscuring of the NRK logo on some podcasts. It ultimately comes down to a question of control. While public media use third-party platforms, they do not have control. In the long run, if you listen to a show every week, and we discovered this with one of our most popular comedy shows, that 27% of the listeners had no idea NRK was making that show. And that is very problematic as an editor, and it's problematic because if you don't know that NRK is making the show you love the most, you don't understand why there's a reason for NRK to exist. Hence, NRK's decision to stop relying so much on the platform. So, how's it going? We've had a 33% growth in our audio app. Having this strategy has also increased our listeners quite immensely. So, we've had some good years. We were quite 
Well, I'm not, I don't know if anxious is the right word, but it was, you know, uh, exciting to see what would happen when we started. But, you know, the the numbers have just been going up and up. So you've said your app has increased by 33%, I think. But does that mean that because maybe listeners aren't listening to it on third party platforms, uh, are you saying that there is maybe a slight fall in listenership overall? when you take all of the listening figures across all platforms into consideration? No, none of the episodes uh, or none of the podcasts or program titles we have made exclusive have fewer listeners than they did uh, before we did this. And all, all of them have more listeners than they used to have. I think there's lessons here to be learned and applied to how public media uses social media. Firstly, NRK's experience shows public media doesn't have to compromise its values or surrender its control to these platforms. They can walk away. And secondly, if you design a platform that's good enough, with content that audiences know and love, then they will come. But here we stumble upon a rather big issue. How? How on earth do you create a platform enshrined in public service values, yes, but with the design and content of a social media platform like a TikTok or Twitter, for example? That's a crucial question. To be honest, I think that alone we will not have all the human and financial resources to reach that. And so it opened a, a, a new question. It's a question of cooperation. Mm. Cooperation between broadcasters at the national level, which is always difficult between commercial and public and collaboration between public broadcasters broadly. Uh, but I think it's an obligation for us. We will have to collaborate because there is no public broadcaster which is alone be able to compete. And it's more sensitive for a small one like RTBF than from BBC or ZDF or uh, France Television, obviously. Uh, but I think that we are, all of us are too small. If I compare the technological investment of the social networks and our technological capacity, okay, the dimensions are, are totally different. But what now we are looking for, and it's a, a step that I hope we will achieve for the end of this year, it's to open our player to uh, user-generated content. The suggestion of user-generated content raises an enormous question over moderation, however. Any public service platform which uses this must ensure it's not allowing mis- and disinformation to circulate, as it does on private platforms. It's an area where there is perhaps a striking difference between, say, an audio streaming app and a social network. I think we are, you have to think about what what is unique for us. We know Norway the best, so we can make texts and heroes and, and show you content that is especially important in Norway today or at this time of day so that we you know, are vibrant and uh, in dialogue and uh, in development uh, all the time. Very key to that is that the development team for NRK Radio works very closely with the content and, and the publishing so that we're very much a team together. And that's a unique thing. Spotify can't do that with everybody making content. As Katinka says, it's easier to create a tailored and country-specific offering to audiences when you are the content creator and publisher. But in the case of a public broadcaster's app offering user-generated content to rival social platforms, 
that's no longer the case. In that scenario, everyone is making content, and so it becomes a much larger job. There is perhaps one more lesson from NRK's experience that can be applied. I think a little bit that, <laughs> or relationship in general, I mean, from uh, a single person to companies or relationship to third-party platforms, I think maybe like in 20, 30 years will be kind of, it will be like smoking. Why did, why were you so naive? Why did you do that? And uh, I think we all need to think long term and I really, really, and that's where, you know, it's important also, I think, to talk on this uh, podcast. It's much, much easier to do things like this if we are together, if we uh, collaborate and work together and do things together and not alone. I think to be able to do some of the things we have to do to keep free uh, media in the future is to stand together on things like this. Stand together, collaborate. It's a mantra shared across many public broadcasters who know alone they cannot combat the strength and control of the tech giants. Alone they cannot make a meaningful challenge to the spread of mis- and disinformation. So could a united front of PSM challenge that dominance? If so, what could such a collective achieve? I'm Catherine Tate and I'm the president and CEO of CBC Radio Canada. Earlier this year, with the leadership of CBC Radio Canada, four public service broadcasters launched the Public Spaces Incubator. The Public Spaces Incubator is our group effort to explore possible solutions to really reclaim the public space online. We've seen an increasing environment of toxic and often highly polarized conversation on social media, we as public service media feel that we have a role to play in creating a safe, a supportive environment for citizen engagement, but also for what I would call civil, civic discourse. Joining CBC Radio Canada is SRJ SSR of Switzerland, ZDF of Germany, and also RTBF. So how did the project initially come about? Part of the privilege of being a publicly funded organization is a commitment to innovation. Obviously, all of us are struggling to provide news and information and entertainment on across multiple platforms. And, you know, operationally, those are big challenges, especially in the face of digital giants. But there is this other piece of our mandate, which is how do we look ahead to the future of media and the role of public service media in an increasingly complex world. And so when we started talking internally about what was happening on platforms like Facebook or even on our own owned and operated platforms where the comments section of our sites was increasingly toxic. Uh, So we were in a situation where we felt we had to shut down Facebook comments or where we were having, you know, in particular group conversations, but just a terrible environment for our content. So that was really where it started was what can we do to address this? How do we take back 
this public space. And so when we were thinking about innovating in this space, it felt like the really very, very opportune to try to engage other colleagues in the exercise of trying to find solutions. And so that's really where this came from. And and so, as you said there, that, that you know, you have engaged other colleagues. And what was it about those three other broadcasters? What, what, why did you choose them? Well, well, choose is, is, is a relative term. We approach them and then they chose us. Let's put it that way. But first of all, we have a long standing collaboration with each of those broadcasters on whether it's through the French language work that we do. Obviously, Radio-Canada, RTBF and SRG have program exchanges. And then on the ZDF side, we have a memorandum of understanding to not only co-produce and develop programming, but to look at ways for advancing trusted news. So those were natural fits for us. Also, you know, given our own realities, we are an officially bilingual country, so we are interested in working with other public media that have the same kind of challenges. And Switzerland is a brilliant example of that in terms of serving multiple language audience. And then it was about their own commitment to innovation. Each of those public service media has been a very, very forward thinking in terms of exploring innovation. So when I approached each of them and said, listen, what about joining in this joint effort? It wasn't just about let's find a solution to the toxic social media environment. It was was also let's see what it is now to work together in a four-way partnership and see what that brings. Because really, this is the first time in the history of public service media that we collaborate, not just collaborate in spirit, but collaborate financially on a joint project of this nature. And I think that's really groundbreaking and important because we globally face incredible challenges. You know, the the digital giants are operating on a global scale and we, public service media, operate on a domestic level. And as long as we're focused in our own markets, we are hobbled by the fact that we don't have scale to leverage our own solutions. So this is a very modest attempt. Obviously, we're only four, but it's a modest attempt to come together to try to solve a global problem. What does Jean-Paul Filippo of RTBF remember of that initial conversation? She shared with us, with me, uh, something between a dream and a conviction. The conviction is social networks, a digital connection with everyone. Conversation in the society are incredible development of what we try to provide since the early beginning of our companies. It's to engage discuss, create links and cohesion in a diverse community. So for us, it's formidable tools and the dreams, and it's the base of the the, the project of this incubator, is to say, is it possible? And we want to say, yes, it will be possible to use all the advantages of these tools to enhance the society and develop our own limits. And so to, to, to limit or to suppress or to forbid, I don't know, that's the core of the incubator process. But 
all the, 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 the problems created and also the BS created by social networks. That's, that's the idea. Conviction and dreams. Jean-Paul believes it's time for public service media to step up. If public broadcasters don't take such initiative and such maybe financial risks, nobody will do. Because when you make an assessment of the market today, what we see is the mission of the government, of the international society. All this development are in the hands of private companies or non-democratic states. It's okay, it's difficult to understand. When we talk about uh, healthcare, about education, about transport, public uh, institutions invest, control, regulate. When we talk about the same topics in the digital world, nobody from the public take care of it. They're not the only ones advocating for a digital space run with public service principles. Joining them in that belief is Matthias Pfeffer, a former war correspondent who covered the Yugoslavian wars as well as the Somali civil war. Being a bar reporter for me, the, the most valuable experience was that we should be more grateful to what we have in terms of achievements, freedom, democracy, stable institutions, good information sphere, which is not misled by propaganda because, you know, there's an old saying, the first victim of war is truth. But, I mean, if that's right, we are already in a war here in Europe. It's an information war. And in Matthias' eyes, it's being fueled by rampant mis- and disinformation circulated through an unregulated and polarising digital sphere. That perception led to him creating the Council for a European Public Space. With funding from the EU Commission, part of their work is to develop an initial platform. We will build within 12 months kind of a showcase or a demonstrator of a Europe-wide platform where independent media can load up their content and it will be automatically translated at the beginning in 15 languages. There will be a meta search engine so that everyone can really find uh, what he's looking for and we are building a new technology for that. Can you just t talk to me a bit about the details of that? Is it early stages or in terms of the concept, do you have an idea of what sort of platform it would look like? Is it, is it going to rely on user-generated content again? Or, you know, is there an existing platform which you're modelling it after? No, we're really trying to, to invent that, but only by bringing together what's already there and already existing. And that is a group of independent media actors and also civil society media actors. They are already active. It's not user-generated content what they are producing, but independent content, which is not uh, driven uh, only by economic interests, but also uh, you know in their communities where they're active and uh, trying to serve their public sphere in countries where there is already now not too much independent media left. Like if you look, for example, to Poland and Hungary, we do have two countries within the European Union that are not, you know, really delivering what is needed for democracy. And that, that will turn out to a very big problem for Europe within the next years, because it's not only a nice-to-have thing having access to trustworthy information. That's 
really the precondition of any kind of democracy. A public digital sphere, Matthias argues, would not only overcome the power of the tech giants, but also bolster independent public interest media in the face of increasingly intolerant states. I just want to point out that this refers to Article 11 of the European Chapter of Human Rights, that it's an obligation that everyone in a democracy has access to trustworthy information and has the chance to bring out his own opinion based on facts. I mean, opinions based on fake and on bullshit are not valuable in democracies. And so this is an, uh, even in my view, it's a constitutional obligation for all democracies in Europe and for the European Commission also to help bringing up such platforms. And there cannot only be one, there are several needed which serve independent media, help them building up an ecosystem, the digital infrastructure age, and on the other side, enabling, and that's the next important question that we can answer today by using new technologies, enabling a European public sphere by using uh, translation technology. So in first time in history, we do have the chance really to build up a European public sphere. So this isn't just about a new platform. It's also about raising the awareness of authorities' responsibilities when it comes to the public digital sphere. We want to lobby for the common interest of having a good, secure, trustworthy digital space for information in the age of AI. And uh, I mean, it's not only about social media, but we're, when we're talking, there's a real revolution going on with Chatpot, GPT and co. They are really disrupting now in a very new way, again, journalism and the media sphere by not only distributing the content via algorithms, which led to, with uh, combined with the economic model of, of targeted advertising, led obviously to bubbles and, and, uh, and a lot of other problems, fragmentation of society, fragmentation of discourse and so on. But now we are going into the second stage of that process, seeing that AI and large language models like ChatGPT are not only distributing the content, but also creating it. And we don't know how they do it. And we don't know how trustworthy they are. I really think they are not trustworthy at all. And so I think that's a very, very crucial phase that we are in. And it should really bring us to the point that we start to build up an alternative European public space. I, I, I'm interested in how you see that public space being built up because although you might be able to develop your own platform these existing platforms with their millions and billions of users wouldn't go anywhere so how do you address the problems i mean is is it regulation is that the simple answer yes it's it's the first answer, and it's very important. Without regulation, we cannot allow that uh, something which is as valuable as uh, trustworthy information for all liberal and deliberative uh, democracies. I mean, it's the precondition for any kind of public discourse, for any kind of opinion building, for any kind of decision making in democracies. And if this sphere is manipulated and disrupted by economic interests, by intransparent uh, algorithms, 
by practices in terms of data handling, which are not aligning to our fundamental rights that we do have here and uh, which do not serve democracy by doing so, but undermining it. I mean, that's really a call for more regulation. And I think especially for these new agents like ChatGPT, AI Act has just been working out. I think it's it's, it's a very good uh, proposal from the European Commission. I was just attending Sam Altman when he was on tour. I, I had found it interesting that he was pointing out on the one side, this is an invention which is as important as the invention of the atomic bomb. But on the other side, bringing it to the information sphere and to the public sphere, it could turn out that ChatGPT and co are really the atomic bomb for the information sphere. And that would mean it would come to a kind of a melting point of democracy by just, you know, allowing them to disrupt our, to go on disrupting our information sphere by their uh, economic interests. And so um, coming back, yes, I really think regulation is the first and absolutely necessary step. Public media can continue to design an alternative. They can continue to plan and consider whether the digital public space is a space in which they want to have some influence. But the existing platforms, they're not going anywhere. And as technology continues to develop, how much is regulation going to be the answer going forwards? Can governments and regulators move fast enough? And what happens when the tech companies push back against the regulation? All that on the next episode. Many thanks to my guests Jean-Paul Filippo, Catherine Tate, Katinka Rondon and Matthias Pfeffer. Thanks as always to Tom Brazier, Lucas Thompson and Rachel Still for the music. Do head to our website for more information about this or get in touch with me directly, harry at publicmediaalliance.org. On August 10th, we're hosting another of our roundtables. These are virtual events where we invite staff at our member organisations to come together and discuss a specific issue relating to public service media. In this edition, we're looking at how public media connects with and serves Indigenous audiences. If you want to sign up or find out more about the event, you can head to the events section under our website. I'll be back with another episode next month. Thanks for listening.